We all go boom, 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 boom. We all go boom, 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 boom. Chaotic days, just, you know, I, I sort of view a, a lot of my days as on the top of a ski run. There's a bunch of moguls. Got to get through the moguls and then take the lift up again and do it again. So I, I, like sort of, it. I sort of embrace the, the chaos and, and try to try to have fun with it. Chaotic days, just, you know, I, I sort of view a, a lot of my days as on the top of a ski run. There's a bunch of moguls. Got to get through the moguls and then take the lift up again and do it again. So I, I, like sort of, it. I sort of embrace the, the chaos and, and try, to, try to have fun with it. Welcome to another episode of the Green Jet Ski Podcast. I'm Noah. Thanks for joining me. And before we get to today's show, which I'm very excited about, kind of took a couple of different turns, but we're still going to be celebrating, which is ironically enough, one of my favorite holidays. You'll have a laugh, but it's fun. And welcome to another episode of the Green Jet Ski Podcast. I'm Noah. Thanks for joining me. And before we get to today's show, which I'm very excited about, kind of took a couple of different turns, but we're still going to be celebrating, which is ironically enough, one of my favorite holidays. You'll have a laugh, but it's fun. Very special thank you to Vincent Santamaria, that opening music right there, for the continued work and blessings that he gives us to use that work on the track Hope Dies Last. And to check out more of his film score compositions, head to vincentsaint.com. Also, very special uh, announcement coming out. We've said it on the show before. Callie Logan, my co-host i just love her so much as my sister it is with great pleasure that i say her book the wallflower that bloomed is coming out in may you need to head to callylogan.com head to amazon get your pre-order in because finding your place at the lunch table of life is what it's all about isn't that right Callie? it is oh it's gonna be so great i'm so excited and uh, there's someone that you may know i think that has endorsed the book Callie. uh who, who is this special uh, fine person mystery person named Noah Dingley. I don't know if you know him, but he's pretty great. Offered a great endorsement for the book. So it's mystery person named Noah Dingley. I don't know if you know him, but he's pretty great. Offered a great endorsement for the book. So well, you know, it, it it's fabulous, and I, you're really going to open minds and change lives. And I'm really glad that you wrote this book. So I'm 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 elated to have been able to read an advanced copy and for you to be able to share it with people. Thank you so much. It's a gift. Well, before we get to the guests, you have a really quick fun fact. And what the topic of people haven't already figured it out, look outside. I don't know what it seems like to you. But as we record this, it's the day before one of my favorite quirky holidays. That's Groundhog Day. And one of my favorite movies, actually, from 1993, starring Bill Murray. We're going to be diving in and out of that today on the show and talking some groundhog facts, some marmot facts with uh, Professor Dan Blumstein. And I'm excited about this. He's over from UCLA, and he's going to be on the line with us here in a moment. But Callie, you did something kind of fun and quirky with Groundhog Day. Your first of something, share. Yeah. So if you follow me on Instagram at all, you'll notice that I do movie recreates where I recreate a scene or a snapshot from a movie. And the very first one I ever did was actually Groundhog Day. It was when the pandemic had just started. And for some reason, I was belly aching just two weeks in that every day was beginning to feel like Groundhog Day. And 
I just decided to recreate the scene using my cat instead of a groundhog. And it got a lot of really great reception and people thought it was really funny. And uh, oh, well, this might be a fun new hobby. And so I think I've done like 15, maybe 20 films later, but the very first one was Groundhog Day. And so it always has a special spot in my heart. I definitely will be sharing it tomorrow. Is that one and still in your Insta, by the way? Oh, it is. And I definitely will reshare it tomorrow because my cat, uh, somehow I think he knew the assignment because he just really <laughs> gave it, his face is very serious and he was very much into what we were doing. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to see that. I, I don't think I've actually seen that one and I've been following your series. I think it's actually, I'm giving you suggestions constantly. And you're like, I can't do that one. I can't do that one. Groundhog Day. That's pretty perfect. Oh, I love it. I, I love getting suggestions. So you've you've had some good suggestions. Actually, a couple of them that I'm scheming on now. So Boris Gump, got to do it. Gotta Stay tuned. It. Stay tuned because I'm tuned. going to D.C. this weekend. So we'll see. Well, people don't have to stay tuned any longer because our guest that I'm truly excited about is on the line with me right now. And that's Professor Dan Blumstein. And he is an educator at UCLA and he studies marmots. Yes, you heard it. Marmots. And that's a group of 15 species of large ground squirrels. And that includes groundhogs, guys. Okay. And he's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. And I'm just really excited to have you on the show, Professor. I know you're over there in uh, another part of the world. Tell us where you're at and, and what you're doing over there. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about Groundhog Day. But where I am, we don't need a midwinter festival. A lot of people in the U.S. and Northern Europe need a midwinter festival. I'm in French Polynesia on the island of Morea, teaching a UCLA undergraduate research class. And the students are out working, studying kelp and algae. And we're looking at animal behavior. We're studying skinks. We're studying fishes. And we're studying this super interesting mutualism of animals where a little goby, a fish, guards a blind shrimp and the blind shrimp excavate holes for the goby and we're looking at the dynamics of this super interesting animal behavior all underwater that's really cool and you've been teaching i just asked you before the show at ucla for going on uh, past 20 years now yeah 23 years i guess that's awesome we're waterlogged here in southern california so it's good to have you safe there in another part of the world because uh, we're, we're suffering here professor you know it's the rainy season here a number of years ago, I teach this course every other year, and we had, I kid you not, over a meter of rain in 24 hours. It wow. was extraordinary. Right now, it's sunny. could be a meter of rain next week. So you're enjoying it at the moment? At the moment. Tell us that I know every year you and your fellows in your department have a Groundhog Day party. I'm super curious what goes on at this Groundhog Day party. What else goes on at parties on Groundhog Day? You talk about the weather, you know, you talk about uh, whether it's going to get yeah. better or worse and things like that. And you all look for your shadow. You all look for your shadow, no doubt. I think we all see our shadows because, uh, you know, there's lights above us. It's funny. You're quoted as saying, I hope that people have some greater appreciation of marmots in nature. And I hope that people have a chuckle over the idea that it's the middle of the winter. And we're hoping that a rodent will tell us what the future is. I mean, you kind of you, you listen to that. I know you're being serious. But that's kind of how it is, and it's kind of silly, isn't it? We need a midwinter festival, and the history of Groundhog Day goes back really far. It was a pagan holiday in Northern Europe when Christianity spread into Northern Europe, when the Germans who emigrated to the U.S. were looking for... And then, by the way, the holiday is about... Uh, it's a midwinter festival, but it employs an animal that predicts the future, predicts the weather. And in Europe, it's a hedgehog. Hedgehogs are softball-sized, spiny animals, mammals, and they hibernate. 
And if they come up and they're trundling around in the midwinter, you know, then the idea was that there's a, a lure about this. It's sunny and it sees its shadow. The idea is there must be a high pressure system, modern words, and we're going to have more winter. If it doesn't see its shadow, there must be turbulence in the weather. And then presumably spring is coming early. So when the Germans came, the Pennsylvania Deutsch came to Pennsylvania, they were looking for an hibernating animal and woodchucks were groundhogs, one of the 15 species of marmots are there and they hibernate and they come out. The males come out early to begin looking around for females and getting ready to reproduce. I'm not sure if they come out on February 2nd. I know that in Puxitani, they get pulled out of their burrow in February 2nd. I'm not sure that's normal, but it depends on the weather. Hibernation isn't you're out the whole winter. The animals prospect and come up and look around and see what the weather is. Yeah, back in the 1880s is as far back as this goes. And you know, now at Gobbler's Knob, it's an annual tradition. This is really exciting. Callie and I, this is right up our alley. Callie, I know you got a couple of questions for the professor. What do you got? I love hearing your heart for your students and stuff. What would you say is particularly your favorite field of study? Like, you know, do you have a specific topic that you really, you know, you nerd out with with them or that is your favorite to teach? I know you said this course current that you're teaching, you teach every other year. Yeah, I'm a behavioral ecologist. I'm interested in animals and plants. Um, you know, how behavior allows them to adapt and work and function in ecosystems. And that's really important in an era of climate change and anthropogenic human domination of many of our environments. And I'm also a conservation scientist. So I take these ideas about understanding how animals can adapt and do things in their environment and try to use that for wildlife management and conservation. I'm particularly interested in ecotourism, nature-based tourism, because I think it's really important that people get outside and see nature, yet animals may perceive us as scary things. So I share these ideas and give my students tools to learn about this and appreciate this. And the projects they're doing mostly get published. We're doing real science out here and it's really intensive and it's really fun. No more important time than now to teach what you teach. So uh, my hat's off to you with that. Thanks. Uh, of the 15 species of furry friends called marmots, which I'm brand new to, I didn't know there were 15 of them, which is the biggest and which is the smallest? Well, in the Himalayas, there's something called Marmota Himalayana robusta, and that's a big one. I worked in Pakistan years ago studying oh. a related species, the golden marmot. The golden marmot was good because there's no money to study ecology and evolution and behavior, and graduate students can't get any grants. This is not biomedicine. And Herodotus wrote about, Herodotus was the first travel writer, and he basically wrote about going through this land where there were great ants that threw gold out of the land. And he was talking about marmots and he was talking about marmots in this part of the world. So where do you go if you're a poor graduate student? You go where Herodotus said there are gold ants, which are marmots. And the golden marmot was the species I first studied years ago in, in northern Pakistan. Woodchucks are pretty big. They grow fast their first year. They disperse. They leave home as, as babies, basically, as, as, as pups. Many other of the marmot species stick around. They can't grow fast enough and they leave home and disperse in their second year or even after that. I run a long-term study of marmots in Colorado now. The, turns out it's the second longest study of individually marked animals in the world, mammals in the world, and started in 1962. The longest study is Jane Goodall's study of chimpanzees in Tanzania in Gombe National Park. She started in 1960. My colleague started this project in 1962, and I took over in 2001. And we follow these animals you know, throughout their lives. They can live up to 16 years for females at our study site, and they're sort of social, but they're not social. They can be very social. They can be less social. Woodchucks are 
Groundhogs are among the least social. And then the other species, I've studied eight of the 15 species, the other species are super social. They live in multi-generational families. They can't disperse because they can't grow enough and put on enough fat because the growing seasons are very short. They live in high alpine areas and they hang out with each other and make it happen. I know Callie's got another question, but I, I'm curious. So you've studied eight of the 15 species. Why haven't the other seven been studied? Is it just harder to get to? At one point, I wrote a proposal to study some other species in Central Asia. And the comment was, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it was a bad thing. Yeah. The comment was, I think we know enough about alarm communication in marmots now. Yeah. But that was a really interesting study to partake in. And I never was able to get to Central Asia and study those species. Now, hopefully one day. Yep. Yeah, that's really cool. So, well, my question was going to be, but you really answered it just for kind of the average Joe, what exactly is a marmot? But is there something that like you said, they're, you know, ground squirrels or ground animals, mammals. And so they burrow. I mean, there are any other classifications that really like set them apart from? Well, they're they're social. Um, they, they vary socially among the different species and they're diurnal. They're active during the day. So they have an address. You know, why do you study marmots? You know, they have an address. Why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. Marmots have an address. You know where to go and find them. Mm. And you can mark them and follow them throughout their lives. Monkeys are diurnal, most of them. People study those, but they have to track around after them. And it's hard to study them in some respects. Marmots are not that social, not as social as monkeys, but you have variation, which is differences among species and individuals, which you can then begin looking for the function of the consequences of ground squirrels in general are a pretty good group of animals to work with. And marmots are the kings of the ground squirrels since they're they're big and, and, and live in nice habitats mostly. That's awesome. Noah here in the Green Jet Ski Podcast. So pleased to have with you and me today on the show, my guest, and that's Professor Dan Blumstein. But I'm so excited because we're learning some fun facts about marmots that I had never known before. A matter of fact, I didn't know really much of anything other than hey, he sees a shadow or he doesn't see a shadow on Groundhog Day. And so my next question is actually kind of interesting. If Puxatani Phil sees his shadow, we'll have six more weeks of winter. But the listener right now might not know exactly why that is. What's the reasoning behind that? So the logic that goes back to a long time ago is that if the weather is stable and it's sunny, if it's sunny in the winter, there's probably a high pressure system. If it's a high pressure system, it's probably stable which means that there's going to be more of the same, more winter. If it's cloudy, if it's raining, if it's precipitating, there's probably something happening. And the idea is that maybe that means that winter will uh, go away sooner. Uh, I'm not sure the predictive value of groundhogs is something you really want to bet the farm on. But nonetheless, that's the lore. It's made a big festival of it every single year. People put a lot of stake in it. Never that's been there. Love to go. It's on my bucket list. And I believe, Callie, have you been there? I don't remember. I haven't. I have been to many places in Pennsylvania, but I haven't been there. But speaking of the festival, you know, the movie is a showcase of a lot of the festivities of it. So I wanted to ask you, Dan, what if you have a favorite scene or a favorite line or a favorite part in the movie with Bill Murray that just stands out to you that gives you just an extra chuckle? Uh, I thought it was a really cute movie. And what was super interesting about the film is that people have analyzed it, various religious folks have analyzed it and sort of looked at what its deeper meaning is. Uh, it's very Zen-like. You know, he's going through things again and again. It's very transformative that other you know, religions emphasize that. So a lot of people see a lot of things in that. I saw it as an enjoyable movie. I've seen it a number of times, and I think it's fun. 
I uh, was talking to my uncle today about the movie, and he was saying how he almost feels like it, less of a zen-like, but he actually feels like it's almost a showcase of purgatory when he's stuck in the repetitiveness. And he was like, I wonder if that would be what purgatory would be. And I hadn't heard that before, and it made me think of it the rest of the day. I was like, you know, that's interesting because he was, uh, yeah, I mean, we kind of- But he got out of it by sort of accepting it. So, exactly exactly right. so, so he, I had, think he had to have a zen realization in order to get out of it so it definitely was purgatory initially yeah yeah it's interesting the analyzing of it though so i'm glad you brought that up because that was something i was going to throw in the pot today so yeah there's nothing funnier though with bill murray driving with the groundhog groundhog's hands little claws on the steering wheel and he's like don't drive angry don't drive angry i, I just lose it every time that was a good scene that's so, the movie recreate scene that I did, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can picture that now, Callie. I can't wait for the picture. So what did the movie get right with tradition and lore, Professor? And what did it get wrong, as far as you know? For, I mean, it obviously was a comedy. It was enjoyable. But I'm sure a lot of you know attention to detail went into that. Did you notice anything when you were watching it? No, I think it got it right. I haven't seen it recently, but I think it got it right. But ironically, I have a teaching assistant, a graduate student helping me teach this course, and he's from a suburb outside Chicago. And it turns out it was filmed in the town next to where he's from. So it wasn't even filmed in Paxitani, which oh, hilarious. I learned, you know, just now. No, I think they 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 really did attention to detail and and the fact that people are there partying and that, you know, the people dress up in classical clothes and pull out this poor marmot uh if given the opportunities phil connor's had and i'm going to put this one up for for everybody here what would you do with your most chaotic day so kind of in that same vein of the don't drive angry what would you do with your most chaotic you can the day will be a race tomorrow kind of clean slate so noah i want to know from you first what would your most chaotic day be yeah there's nothing funnier though with bill murray driving with the groundhog groundhog's hands little claws on the steering wheel and he's like don't drive angry don't drive angry i, I just lose it every time oh my lord i mean i'm gonna have to uh to think about that one i don't know if i can give an instant answer but I think to be able to, I, I like the concept of the movie because as much as it, you know, at first seems like it's a, it's a hell that he's stuck in to be able to try and get things right that go wrong over and over again, uh, I would find that a challenge. And so you would find out a lot as he did about yourself along the way and along the journey. And in the end, he becomes a better person for that. And so I think it would be fascinating to, learn about myself in the process i don't know if i'm introspective enough to uh have a good answer for that but um you know <laughs> chaotic days just you know I, I sort of view a lot of my days as on the top of a ski run there's a bunch of moguls got to get through the moguls and then take the lift up again and do it again so Not i like sort it. of i sort of embrace the the chaos and, and try to try to have fun with it i like that i like that a lot very cool so tell us about, I'm really curious because I did a little bit of research, Professor, about the sound of fear. And it was a TED Talk that you did at UCLA. And you asked the questions, have you ever been afraid of a sound? Has a sound ever scared you? Is the sound of fear noisy? Is the sound of fear nonlinear? Why were you trying to have this discussion in the first place? I'm, I'm very curious and i read the article and, there's, and i saw the uh, not the article but i read the transcript i saw the video and there's a lot going on here and a lot of this relates to sounds that we hear out in nature and you can kind of pull it back into movies as well 
Yeah. So I mostly study the diversity of animals and I'm interested in, you know, why we have such diversity and why things may be functional. And one of the take homes from this is there's lots of ways of, you know, slicing an onion. There's lots of ways to solve a problem. And that diversity to me is really interesting. At times, I use this insights from this to try to understand human behavior. And I've been involved in a number of projects there as well. And we trap our marmots. We live trap them. We try not to hurt them. We don't hurt them. We uh, handle them, uh, but we handle them very carefully. And I've trapped thousands of animals and, you know, we trapped tens of thousands of animals, tens of thousands of times for our study. And I was holding a baby marmot in my hand very gently. They're really cute. You can hold them. The other ones we struggle with a little more, they bite and it screamed and I almost dropped it. And I had an emotional response and that really struck me. I hear them alarm calling. I hear them giving warning signs to others all the time, but I don't have emotional responses to alarm calls. Why was I having an emotional response to a baby marmot screaming? And the scream sounds like a scream. Turns out I did a bunch of research on this and started studying the screams. And screams are very similar across different species. I mean, you've probably heard a cat scream. If you hear a dog scream, it's kind of similar. It's whiny, it's chaotic, it's noisy, it turns out. And other species make scream-like sounds as well. So if you think about, and particularly in, in painful situations or scary situations, or really emotionally evocative situations. So you know, if you think about a a chimpanzee. <laughs> so these overblowing really making a loud sound. So these overblowing vocal production systems are, think about your stereo. <laughs> think about how you turn up your car stereo and it sounds good and it gets louder and louder and louder until it doesn't. And when it goes from sounding pretty good and loud to sounding not so good, it does so in a predictable way. And the system can be described, that, that production system can be described as being nonlinear. It's chaotic. There's predictable unpredictabilities. So when you start looking at animal sounds, you find that screams contain a whole suite of what might be called nonlinear acoustic elements, noise, rapid amplitude shifts, rapid frequency shifts. And all of these things happen when you turn your stereo up too loud as well. So if you think about how these animals producing these sounds, whether it's a bird blowing air across its syrinx or a mammal blowing air across its vocal folds, they start behaving chaotically because they're sort of overstimulated. So you can then say, are these sounds evocative? And they are. And if you add noise or other nonlinearities to normal sounds, lots of species pay attention to them. They capture attention. So I did a lot of studies with marmots and birds, and then we started lizards. Um, and then we started doing studies with people and we looked at movie soundtracks and we said, well, maybe fearful situations are going to not only have screams, but they're also going to have other nonlinearities in them. Now, a soundtrack is really interesting. A soundtrack is background sound, you know, diagenic sound. A soundtrack includes Foley. A soundtrack includes sound effects. A soundtrack includes music. A soundtrack includes spoken words and potentially non-spoken words and vocal signals. So what you have is this whole orchestra of score of sounds. So we started looking at these as though they were produced by an animal, by a system. And what we found was that horror films had more nonlinear sounds in them than expected by chance. And sad, dramatic films, iconic scenes in sad, dramatic films had fewer than expected by chance, suggesting that film score composers and, and directors and people developing soundtracks are putting these sorts of things into their soundtracks to evoke emotions. We then said, okay, that's great. That's correlative. 
let's study humans. So the, the secret about psychology is that most of what we know comes from like North American college students who have to get credit for participating in various experiments. So I talked to a friend who studies music and he studies communication and he studies humans. And I said, you know how to get access to these people. And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, here's the question. He goes, that's a good question. Let's ask it. So we asked it with UCLA students and we said, so what do you think about these sounds? Uh, and we gave them lots of sounds. We made little ditties of music. We sort of asked them to rank little ditties of music uh, that either had or didn't have specific nonlinearities. The frequency goes up, the frequency goes down quickly, or there was the addition of noise. And what we found was people didn't like the noisy sounds and to some extent, the sounds that went down quickly. And the take home message from this is these particular sounds can evoke emotions. And to bring the story back to marmots, I had an emotional response to a baby marmot because it produced sounds that evoked emotions and emotions in me negative emotions. I love what you said too about horror movies. I'm a big horror movie junkie. And it's so true because if you take away a lot of the sounds, especially a lot of the music, it doesn't have the same impact when you watch it, Professor. It really like, it's not as scary. It's not as intense. Well, okay. Jaws. We all go boom, 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 boom. Shark hit. There was no music. There was no sound. So film score composers are masters of their craft. Absolutely. And, and sound can be used and music can be used and it can be integrated with visuals as well to create emotions. And they're pretty good at it. So I don't think they know why they evoke emotions. So what our work has done is taking a very biological approach and trying to understand you know, how emotions are evoked more broadly in, across animals, including humans. Fascinating study. So with that being said, you studying so many film composers, do you have a favorite one and why? Yeah, I like Gustavo Santabella, who is a Argentinian composer who did Motorcycle Diaries and Brokeback Mountain. Motorcycle Diaries, I think, is my favorite soundtrack ever. But he's won multiple academies, and he's just a, an amazing composer that plays all sorts of different instruments. I actually saw him live a couple of years ago, and his band, one person alone, played 30 different instruments during it. Super interesting music. With your permission, Professor, we're going to link that TED Talk in the description of the show in the podcast, because I think everybody could really learn a lot from that, especially if they're into film and movies like myself and like Callie. I think it's going to bring a, another layer to the onion for them to really find out why some of the composers do what they do. Yeah, thanks. That'd be great. Yeah. And if people want to find out more or contact you, what's the best way for them to, to reach you? As of today, my website is down because we're having some outage at UCLA, but normally you can just Google me, my name, Marmots UCLA, you'll find me. Cool. Is there anything in particular, Professor, that you'd like to close with, something that you find fascinating, whether it's another Marmot fact or something else about music? Because I know you have a deep love for music that you'd like to share, or maybe you just have another scene from Groundhog Day that you find absolutely hysterical that you would like. You to know, share. I'm going to share a new insight that we, found, we discovered a couple of years ago with hibernating animals. So hibernation is this, is this amazing adaptation that allows animals to essentially use no energy while there's no food around. So our marmots are cat-sized, and when they're in deep torpor in the middle of the winter, they burn about a paperclip mass of fat a day. So they might be 15 pounds, but they're burning a paperclip's mass a day of fat. That's extraordinary. And it turns out that if you look at how they physiologically age using something called epigenetics or looking at changes to the genome that occur normally through wear and tear, they don't seem to age when they hibernate. Hibernating animals 
live about twice as long as they would be expected to live if you just look at predictive models based on body mass. Body mass is a big predictor of longevity. It turns out that they live about twice as long. And one of the reasons is probably because they don't physiologically age because they're hibernating. Now that in some sense makes sense. They've shut down their metabolism. They're not burning any fat. They're not using their systems. But seeing that the epigenetics of this stalls during hibernation is really interesting. We weren't really well-funded for this work, um, but NASA has been interested in understanding the physiology of hibernation as a way to get people to survive deep space travel. And I think the fact that people aren't aging when they're knocked out in the deep torpor state is really interesting. Not that people are in that state yet, but that's the hope. It's fascinating. I'm also a big sci-fi guy, and that's uh, some of what you see in some of the sci-fi movies is that's how people get from point A to point B is they have to go into this deep hibernation, kind of a Cairo sleep, and they're able to not age in the process. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, it almost so, makes you think of Rip Van Winkle and you know how that wasn't even intentionally in that vein, but he doesn't age in that 20 right. years that he's asleep. So I'm like, huh. Maybe he yep, was onto yep. something a little more yeah. than we knew. <laughs> yep. Now, the question is, do you want to sort of slow your aging down by hibernating? And I would say probably not because you miss out on a lot, including <laughs> midwinter festivals. Exactly. You're, you're going to miss out on Groundhog Day. You don't want to do that. Of course not. It's worth the wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Professor, we appreciate you coordinating this with us over the different time zones and just giving us some fun facts on groundhogs, some additional history on Groundhog Day, and then just the inner workings of music and sounds, which I think can not just affect us in here in the human culture, but in nature as well. I think it's all just fascinating stuff, and I really want people to check out the, the Sound of Fear when they have the time to do that as well. I also have a book called The Nature of Fear, which talks about a lot of oh. my research, including The Sound of Fear. And where's the best place for people to get that? Amazon, I imagine? Amazon, Nature yeah. of Fear, Dan Blumstein. Professor, thanks for coming on. And uh, that is Professor Dan Blumstein. And I am just really fascinated that you were able to spend some time with us. We'd love to have you back on and uh, talk about maybe some more fascinating facts with the things that you study and are teaching out there at UCLA. Thanks for having me. Callie, go ahead and close us out here on the Green Jet yeah. podcast. I thought this was a great talk, a great chat. Yeah, super fun. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And as always, follow us on Twitter. And now we've got the gram as well. So and thank it's, you so much. Yeah, it's Green Jet Ski Pod on uh, both platforms. Yep. And we'll see you next time. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Callie. And to the listeners, we'll see you next time. I share these ideas and give my students tools to learn about this and appreciate this. And the projects they're doing mostly get published. We're doing real science out here and it's really intensive and it's really fun. Yep. And we'll see you next time. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Callie. And to the listeners, we'll see you next time.